One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Julian Marshall. And over the next hour, we'll be looking at uh, Russia's growing involvement in Africa and asking if it's becoming a key player on the continent and to whose benefit. Next month, President Putin is hosting the first ever Russia-Africa summit in the resort town of Sochi, at which he'll have a chance to create new partnerships with African governments, which in the past have had closer ties with the West. Some countries have already accepted Russia's military support, while others have signed energy and mining deals with Russian companies. So what is Moscow's Africa doctrine? Is it business-driven or are the Russians staging a post-Soviet comeback for influence? After all, there was a time during the Cold War when the Soviet Union was more than a match for the West in Africa. In this clip from 1980, the Soviet-backed Marxist-Leninist Ethiopian dictator Mengistu Haile Mariam justifies a campaign of what was called Red Terror, the killing of tens of thousands of his political opponents. He's speaking to a BBC reporter through an interpreter. What we had here was class struggle. This was a country where 75% of its people were peasants and all arable land in the country was in the hands or the possession of a handful of rich people and landlords. And now the land belongs to the people, but this land has not been given to them by the landlords just like that as a gift. Those who were dispossessed of their political and economic rights had to resort to violence. Why have many senior officials of the Derg, some of, some of your closest colleagues in the past, why are they reported to have disappeared? Some have been reported to have received open and revolutionary justice. It's quite strange to me, quite a new thing to me, this uh, statement of some members of the Derg to have so disappeared, the way you put it, is unfounded. Of course, there were some who could not keep pace with the revolution and some who joined arms or who uh, joined the ranks of the counter-revolutionaries. And these people, and to these people, due process of law has been given and they were tried as such. And uh, with me to discuss Russia's current engagement with Africa, Olga Kulkova of the Africa Institute in Moscow, Natalia Bogayova, Russia team leader at the Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C., Paul Simon Handy, senior advisor with the Institute for Security Studies in Dakar and uh, Addis Ababa, and Alex Vines, head of the Africa program at the London-based research organization Chatham House. Alex, and uh, firstly to you, should we be surprised at Russia's current engagement in Africa, given its past engagement during the Soviet uh, times? Not at all. I think if you look at the current context in Africa, the whole continent, all 54, 55 countries, there is a strong thrust for diversifying partnerships. This is to do with the new realities that we're dealing in a multipolar world, And so many African countries are looking for engagement for the first time or re-engagement with old partners. And Russia is part of that calculation. So we've seen China and Turkey 
Even places like Malaysia and Thailand being involved, well, Russia's part of that. It's both historic and it's new. And I think over the last couple of years, that's why we've seen this cranking up of Russian re-engagement, which will be very visible next month at this Sochi summit that you mentioned. You call it re-engagement. Just remind us of the extent of Soviet involvement in Africa. Oh, the Soviets were really deep and, and became a very important player in the African continent in the 50s and 60s, right up to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, And a number of countries were incredibly deeply involved. So you could think of Egypt or Algeria or Angola as very good examples, or Ethiopia for for a while, as, uh, as we've heard. And some of those relationships continued, but some really did fray. Now we're seeing reinvestment in those old networks, And Olga Kulkova in Moscow, your Africa Institute has been going for 50 years for a period that now uh, straddles the Soviet and now the Russian era. Yes, that's true. I can only agree with what Alex said, that Russia is uh, re-engaging in Africa. It is returning to Africa, as we say here in Moscow. And as we see, uh, last couple of years, there has been numerous initiatives, numerous high-level meetings with African partners, which all led to the fact that in October we'll have the first ever Russian-Africa summit, which is highly expected here in Moscow. And it is expected that uh, leaders of most of African countries will come to the summit and that there'll be uh, many agreements signed. What sort of agreements? In various fields, economic partnership, because there'll be an economic summit on the sideline of the political summit. There'll be panels on uh, economic ties, on media, on security also, on ecological projects, projects and cooperation in humanitarian and social sphere also. Natalia Bogayova in uh, Washington, would you agree that it just makes sense that it's logical given Russia's past in Africa as the Soviet Union that it should be re-engaging? I would just mention that African outreach from Russia is not a isolated campaign. It's yet another theater where Vladimir Putin pursues his core objectives. And in Africa specifically, the Kremlin seeks to develop additional revenue streams, as we just talked about, particularly in arms sales, mineral resources, and nuclear energy. But it is also about additional aspirations such as expanding the global military footprint. We're assessing that Russia holds basin aspirations in African countries like Egypt, Sudan, Libya, potentially Eritrea. And finally, it is also about pulling Africa into a network of global alliances that Kremlin is trying to build currently, partially with a goal to gain global acceptance of uh, its activities internationally. And one of the deals that Kremlin hopes to sign at the Sochi summit is agreement between the African Union and the Russia-led Eurasian Economic Union. I would just also highlight that the outreach, it's coordinated. It's not a separate set of business or government activity. It is one campaign and also one united pool of executives operating on the Kremlin's behalf. Paul Simon Handy, which view do you subscribe to? Russia's current uh, engagement with Africa, is is it benign or malign? Oh, I don't think we should see it in those categories. It is normal. It is normal from an African perspective, African countries wanting to diversify their economic partnership and political partnerships as well. And I think it's um, it's just normal also from a Russian perspective, trying to um, have uh, or to get back the footprint they used to have 
in Africa. We've seen in the last years an acceleration of political uh, and security partnerships in many countries of the continent. So um, I think it's just normal. It's part of the global competition and Russia is trying to play its part. Well, the Central African Republic is uh, regularly cited as the country where Russia has made significant inroads in recent years. The country's embattled president, uh, Faustin Akarj Toadera, sought Moscow's support in defeating multiple rebel groups vying for power. Uh, That request was quickly accepted. Russian civilian and military personnel arrived in numbers. In fact, one of the president's national uh, security advisers is a Russian named Valery Zakharov. It was the will of the President of the Central African Republic that we should come here. I must emphasize this again. We, all of us, are here at his invitation. It is the vision of the President to improve ties with Russia. And why is this? Let's remember our history. Russia first came here in 1964. Today, Russia's simply coming back. That's all. Everything you can see here that's of any value was created under President Bukasa with the support of the Soviet Union. And I've been hearing more about uh, Russia's present-day involvement in the Central African Republic from Florodon Elabdi, a journalist who was in the CAR and interviewed Mr. Zakharov. First, it was an arrangement to supply weapons and later it became also military training and the weapons kept coming and... um, more and more Central African soldiers have now, and the gendarmerie and the police have been trained by Russian military and also Russian PMC, Wagner, a private military company. Three Russian journalists were killed trying to find out a little bit more about what Wagner was, was doing in the Central African Republic last year, and that uh, led to a lot of Russian media interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were going up north to uh, investigate Wagner's role in CAR, but they were killed on the road. And uh, I've talked to Valery Sakharov, and he uh, states the official explanation that they had taken a dangerous road and they were just killed by robbers. And yes, of, of course, road robbers is a real problem in the Central African Republic. But there are also a lot of mysterious circumstances still not uncovered by investigations that surround the, the death. And how do the locals see the Russians in the Central African Republic? I mean, do they mind whether it's uh, Russians or, or French? I think there's been some optimism, actually, towards the Russians because France in general has a very, very bad reputation in the Central African Republic. They had a long colonial rule, a long violent one, and then there was the post-colonial era where they also um, had a lot of violent engagements and the Sangari's mission was tainted by uh, widespread allegations of sexual misconduct from French soldiers. So I think when the Russians uh, made their entry... A lot of Central Africans may have felt an optimism, but I've also heard now that uh, this optimism is starting to turn around and a lot of Central Africans are saying that the Russians have just replaced the French. They are not any better. So the Central African Republic is, is a market for Russian weaponry. It's an opportunity to extract minerals. But beyond that, does the Central African Republic have any kind of strategic importance for Russia? 
CAR was basically the first African country where Russia has engaged on such a large uh, scale. So they are using CAR as a door to the north and to the east and to the west and south in the rest of Africa because, as uh, the country's name suggests, it's situated right in the heart of Africa. That was the journalist uh, Florian Alabdi, a reminder that you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Julian Marshall, and Natalia Bogiova. You heard there that the Central African Republic is... Uh, a market for Russian arms. But uh, what kind of minerals, what kind of resources would Russia be hoping to extract? Absolutely. Russia has an overall push to expand its access to natural resources in Africa. Central African Republic is only one area where it's operating. Specifically in CAR, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, a close associate of Putin, has reportedly received concessions for diamond and gold. Other companies, uh, such as Rosgeologia, which is a geological exploration company, are operating in other parts of Africa, such as Algeria, Madagascar, Angola, and Sudan. And we can also uh, talk about uh, numerous other state-owned enterprises, such as Rostec, which is a weapons and technology company, Rosneft Oil and Natural Gas Corporation, as well as Alrosa, which is a major diamond company and working on to expand their access to diamonds, gold, energy. And I'd like to point out that uh, those people are not here to defend or speak to the nature of their activities in Africa. Olga Kukova, what uh, benefits can the Central African Republic hope to gain from Russia's engagement in the country and indeed uh, Russia's engagement with other African countries? I think that Russia has always given a, a signal to the African countries that we are ready to support you in providing security if you need our assistance. And uh, as we know, uh, the president of the Central African Republic really turned for help. And the Russian troops that were sent there, it was done with uh, in coordination with the UN and as we in Moscow see it, Russian team man- managed to help to stabilize the situation in this country somehow. And that is uh, viewed positively in our country. Alex Vines. The Central African Republic is a part of the world that most countries in the world were disinterested in. And the former colonial power, France, felt rather lonely there, actually, looking for partnerships. Yes, the UN went in. But the Central African Republic government presidency did reach out to Russia. I mean, that is how this happened. And the Russians responded. But the the way the Russians responded was seeing an opportunity here, which also shocked the French because they weren't expecting suddenly a significant engagement of the Russian Federation Central African Republic. So Western neglect opens up opportunities in this politics of diversification for looking at other partners. And that is what's happened in Central African Republic. My worry is that there is no emphasis at all on institution building, governance, accountability. I mean, if you look at the Russian footprint on Africa, 39% of weapons transfers to the whole continent are Russian at the moment. That makes one in seven exports that are coming in from Russia being defense ones. And that's not a sustainable relationship. My own reading of Central African Republic is it wasn't strategic uh, because it's in the center of Africa, but it was an extension of a Russian policy built around Sudan, which was also about keeping a certain former head of state in power there, Mr. al-Bashir. He has gone. 
So the Russian strategy is actually in trouble in that part of the world because it was built on an assumption of a long-standing leader remaining power who is very sympathetic to the Russian Federation. Paul Simon Handy, you've been closely involved with the Central African Republic through the United Nations. Yes, I think Russia's... um, I can't help but think that Russia's involvement in the Central African Republic is somehow a bit overestimated. As Alex said, up to now, what Russia has done in the Central African Republic is to provide or support the current government with the delivery of arms. Not more than that, and a bit of military training. It's more a symbolic presence than uh, something substantial, but maybe uh, that's just the beginning of a much bigger presence. I think that at least um, uh, for the moment, Russia's involvement in other parts of Africa, like uh, in Algeria, Egypt, is much, much, much bigger in terms of uh, economic investment than in the CAR. And indeed, the chair of the African Union is co-chairing the Sochi summit. So President Sisi is the co-chair with Mr. Putin. That emphasises the importance of Egypt in many ways. But Paul Simon Handy, that particular point made by Alex Vines, the absence of institution building when Russia gets involved in African countries. What's your response to that? I don't think it's a specificity of Russia's involvement in Africa. I don't think Russia is particularly interested in building institutions where it's it's involved. And in Africa, that's the case. Maybe during the Soviet time, that was different. But yeah, that's true. We see less of institutional building. But that's what makes Russia attractive for many countries as well. Uh, Natalia Bogoyova, would you um, go along with that, that uh, the attraction of uh, Russia to many African countries is the fact that uh, it sets so few conditions for its involvement? I would agree with that. And I would also add that Russia is focusing on its comparative advantage and sort of a niche value proposition in certain sectors that are valued by uh, local power brokers and authoritarian leaders, such as energy, mineral resource exploration, weapons, but also providing personal security, sales of wheat and other types of energy, such as nuclear. And I think that's an appealing value proposition at this point of time. I will say, however, that some of Russia's both investments and narratives uh, are limited. And I think in the longer term, they actually may backfire because Russia in the long term cannot necessarily compete with the scale of investment by other players in the region. Olga Kukova, are you um, slightly distressed when you hear such uh, cynical and uh, sceptical views about Russia's involvement in Africa and uh, its seeming inability to uh, build democratic institutions and uh, maybe set conditions for becoming involved? Uh, not at all. I'm not distressed. Uh, what we think in Moscow here is that Russia is not in a position to offer its views on how African countries should build their institutions, how they should I mean, develop them. It's a part of Russia's policy. We uh, are principally against interference into the internal affairs. And, you know, but, how, but, uh, Olga, sorry. May the I, Russia is, Russians are very involved in providing electoral assistance and advice. I mean, we've seen uh, this in Madagascar and various places. Surely that is an intervention into domestic politics. Okay. Well, Sorry, both of you. We'll come to Madagascar in the the second half of the program. But Olga Kulkova, back to you. Thank you. So this is uh, the position of Russian state. And we are ready to develop relations with any African country who would like to have partnership with us. And 
I can say that Russia is viewed often in the West as an unwanted player on the African continent. But in fact, Russia has the same right to pursue its interests and to develop relations with African partners. But this swift re-engagement may seem like a surprise, like a Probably people sometimes they do not know what to expect and probably Russia should uh, be more visible and talk more about the aims and you know the methods of its African policy to project more clearly its position. So, so are you saying that uh, Russia tends to be a little bit secretive about its uh, involvement in Africa? I would not call it secretive, but we are a bit modest. We should uh, talk more about our views and give our arguments more. I mean, through media, through soft power channels, on what we are going to do and what we are planning to do and what we want, for example, from the partnership with African countries. But Olga, do you think maybe Russia has a, has an image problem because of um, its support perhaps for President Assad in, in Syria, Russian uh, military involvement there, Russian military involvement in, in eastern Ukraine? Do you think that's why maybe people are a little bit sceptical uh, when it comes to Russian involvement in Africa? Yes, I can agree with you that the course of events since 2014 has uh, affected all the global situation and the position of Russia in the world and probably the perception. But I think this perception is not so negative as the West tends to think. Many sympathize. They like uh, Vladimir Putin, for example. Sometimes they see Russia's policy as a welcome alternative to the Western ideas. So. Uh, Natalia Bogiova, Russia has as much right as um, any other country to become engaged in Africa. I think Russia has a clear set of defined objectives that it's pursuing there. Not all of them are necessarily malign by design. Some of them are pragmatic business outreach. However, we cannot forget the fact that there are also geopolitical ambitions that are tied to their African campaign, and one of them specifically is to help normalize some of Russia's illegal behavior. And one of the items that I'd like to point out is that a lot of Russian ambassadors on the ground have held a lot of meetings to, for example, justify Russia's engagement and occupation of Crimea or other international violations of the norms. One of the more concerning efforts that we're seeing is investments in information space, RT and Sputnik already broadcast their content in Africa, but recently they have started to expand into local partnerships where they partner with local TV or radio stations such as in the Eritrea or DRC and help provide content, uh, which is not always the most objective content, uh, as a part of their broader soft outreach campaigns. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service this week. We're looking at Russia's renewed interest in Africa. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And uh, do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But um, now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Julian Marshall. This week we're looking 
at uh, Russia's growing involvement in Africa. And still with me, Olga Kolkova of the Africa Institute in Moscow, Natalia Bogayova, uh, Russia team leader at the Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C., Paul Simon Handy, senior advisor with the Institute for Security Studies in Africa, and Alex Vines, head of the Africa program at the London-based research organisation, Chatham House. Earlier in the program, we looked at the reasons why Russia is re-engaging with a continent where it had considerable influence during the Cold War and why that Soviet engagement came to an end. We heard about the business opportunities for Russia in arms sales and mineral extraction and the potential benefits for African countries in dealing uh, with a country that hadn't been their colonial master. But has Russia really been welcomed by Africans with open arms. Uh, A question for you, Paul Simon Handy. In general, yes. If I take the Central African Republic, yes, the local population has been actually quite enthusiastic about Russia's experience, but we should see that against the background of maybe the rejection of another partner, which is France, uh, that uh, has um, quite um, an issue with its reputation with uh, Central Africans. So Russia has been uh, welcomed in the Central African Republic, but even beyond. Uh, Russia wasn't a colonial master in in Africa, so it doesn't have this burden, and is uh, generally seen as a welcome alternative to uh, Western countries. Uh, African countries are generally quite happy to be able to diversify because they see Russia, but also they also see China, Turkey, and so on as as interesting alternatives. And Alex Vines, earlier in the program, you were making the point about. Um whether or not Russia is welcome depends on which side of the political fence you are sometimes. Well, it depends what the Russians have been doing too. I I would fully agree with what we just heard about the Central African public. But compare with South Africa, the Russians were deeply involved with the former president, Mr. Zuma, around a big nuclear deal for $70 billion for for Rosatom with corruption and smelliness all around it. When Zuma left the presidency that relationship has just collapsed. I mean, honestly, the Russians were miserable at the BRICS summit in South Africa because the South Africans wouldn't touch them, and whereas they lauded the Chinese. So it really does depend partly on how the Russians behave and what they're doing, and a change of government or president can change the relationship that quickly. But to the wider point, it also depends that Russians are involved in trying to encourage changes. The Russian ambassador intervened in a speech in Guinea-Conakry, suggesting that Alpha Conte might well be appropriately thinking of going for a third term. That's an intervention into domestic politics. At the moment, Guinea has a two-term constitution, as is the norm for West Africa. But here you can see some Russian mischief going on, and I think it tends to be around mineral resources as a key driver. Well, let's just hear another example of the way in which uh, Russia is trying to influence political outcomes in Africa. Earlier this year, a BBC investigation from Madagascar revealed that in the lead-up to last year's presidential elections, um, several presidential candidates were offered money by the Russians. It started nearly a year before what was going to be a tightly fought race. Three Russian men, all carrying tourist visas, appeared in Madagascar, joined by prominent political strategists also from Russia. Here in Madagascar, laws on electoral funding are weak. 
Our investigation has established that the payment of candidates by Russians appears to have been a systematic and coordinated operation to exert control over a hotly contested election. Shortly after he was sworn in as president, and while there is no suggestion that Mr. Hadzwilna has taken cash from Russia, many now question if democracy has been fatally compromised. And with further elections across Africa later this year, will the hidden hand of Russia be revealed once again? And Alex Vines, in the case of Madagascar, the attempt to influence the outcome of a presidential election with what in mind? Your, your investigation, the BBC investigation, showed that money was being flashed around. There were lots and lots of presidential candidates. And in fact, none of the ones that the investigation by the BBC were, were particularly relevant at the end, but it kind of knocked them out. There is another leaked document that was published by the British uh, uh, newspaper The Guardian, which suggested that actually the, the, the game plan for the Russians was to support a particular candidate who actually did become president. And the idea being knocking out opposition to him funding a newspaper in, in Madagascar uh, and preparing the way forward for him. And I think this opens up then to the discussion of why is Madagascar important for Russia? And I think that is to do with its behaviour on, uh, on voting in the UN General Assembly. So that's an important thing. But mineral resources are also important. Uh, and I think that's another uh, issue. But Russia might easily counter, well, everybody's at it. I mean, is it not the case that Western governments have preferred candidates in African presidential elections? Oh, I mean, elections can be murky business. And we know that a Cambridge-based, now defunct consultancy called Cambridge Analytica, so Cambridge in the UK, was involved in providing mischief for the Ken last Kenyan elections, for example. So this isn't unique. But it is. Uh, it does make the point that Russia is as involved in mischief in elections as anybody else is. And that this idea of that there's no interference just doesn't stand. The R Russians are there. They're looking for opportunities. Sometimes it's very experimental and very low tech. And just, just to see what happens. Uh, and of course, if you can then get a, a, a result where a president is sympathetic to Russia because of the electoral consultancy that's been provided, that can then cascade open opportunities for defence and business and mineral resources and other things. Natalia Bogiova, my question was, has Russia really been welcomed by Africans with open arms? Uh, given what we've just heard, do you think uh, most Africans know what Russia is up to in their own countries? I would imagine that the knowledge of locals of Russian operations is quite limited. And one of the items that we're tracking is the extent of the blowback phenomena that Russia is experiencing in other places when its interference is discovered. So far, we haven't actually seen the actual effects of that in Africa, both in uh, Madagascar example, but also most recently uh, Russians were exposed um, in Libya. Uh, two Russians were detained also on charges of um, attempts to interfere in the elections. The only example where it actually stands is South, I already mentioned South Africa example. However, I think with the extent of information accessibility, it might be a, a less of a opportunity for the locals to both discover and care to the same extent as West does when Russian interference is uncovered. Olga Kukova at the Africa Institute in Moscow, quite a long list there of um, allegations against uh, the Russian state and uh, some of the things it's been up to in uh, Africa. But I just wondered whether 
Moscow also had another course in Africa, whether it was trying to peddle soft power as well, whether it was trying to cultivate cultural links. Russia is definitely trying to develop its soft power in Africa. For example, Rossetrudnichesto, which is considered the main Russia soft power agency, uh, it works with Russian compatriots abroad, including in Africa. We have several Russian cultural centers in various African countries. And Rossetrudnichesto last year said that uh, we are planning to open new cultural centers. And there's uh, plenty of work Russia does. Of course, we probably don't have these financial possibilities like China or India, but still we are doing our best to promote Russian culture, for example, Russian theater, Russian music, Russian literature, even the courses of Russian language, opening Russian language schools and inviting African students to study in Russia. Currently, around 15,000 African students are studying in Russian universities, and uh, uh, Russia has set the goal to attract more foreign students, including from African countries, in the coming years. Russian Orthodox Church makes uh, some steps to increase contacts uh, with African Orthodox uh, Christians. We have a foundation called Ruski Mir, which uh, promotes cultural links with African countries. And also we have people who studied in, uh, in Soviet or Russian universities and who are quite friendly and who are ready to cooperate uh, with Russia. And also the media presence is increasing on the African continent, which I think is positive. Yeah. Paul Simon Handy, how much appetite is there, do you think, in Africa for Russian culture? For Russian culture, I'm, I'm not quite sure. What I know is um, regarding Russian soft power, Russian media, Russia Today and Sputnik, there are studies uh, indicating that the audience of those media is actually increasing, particularly in French-speaking countries. And uh, it's quite an, an interesting development. The content, uh, both TV, radio, but also the online content of those media seems to be quite appreciated by some, particularly in French-speaking Africa. And, and, I, and I noticed, uh, Paul Simon, that in, in the Central African Republic, the, the Russians organized a beauty pageant. Absolutely. That's quite interesting. Natalia Bogeyova, we've heard about the exercise of uh, Russian soft power, um, the way in which uh, Russia is uh, meddling in the elections in in some African countries. But um, do you get the impression that it is engaged also in a propaganda war to uh, counter maybe Western influence in Africa? Russia frames uh, its engagement in Africa in a number of ways. It stresses the African solutions for African problems, uh, as we heard earlier today. But it also stresses the fact that it has never been colonial power, sometimes directing this anti-colonial rhetoric against the West and particularly France. Though while these uh, narratives may resonate in the short term with select power brokers, they also might um, backfire in the longer run, given that the reality is that the Kremlin can afford only limited investments in Africa. Well, whatever Russia's intentions are in Africa, they're viewed with great mistrust by the United States. Here's the former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, speaking last year, outlining the Trump administration's focus on Africa. Our first priority, enhancing U.S. economic ties with the region, is not only essential to improving opportunities for American workers and businesses, it is also vital to safeguarding the economic independence of African states and protecting U.S. national security interests. Great power competitors, 
namely China and Russia, are rapidly expanding their financial and political influence across Africa. They are deliberately and aggressively targeting their investments in the region to gain a comp competitive advantage over the United States. Russia, for its part, is also seeking to increase its influence in the region through corrupt economic dealings. Across the continent, Russia advances its political and economic relationships with little regard to the rule of law or accountable and transparent governance. It continues to sell arms and energy in exchange for votes at the United Nations, votes that keep strong men in power, undermine peace and security, and run counter to the best interest of the African people. Russia also continues to extract natural resources from the region for its own benefit. In short, the predatory practices pursued by China and Russia stunt economic growth in Africa, threaten the financial independence of African nations, inhibit opportunities for U.S. investment, interfere with U.S. military operations, and pose a significant threat to U.S. national security interests. Well, the hawkish uh, Mr. Bolton um, has gone, but Alex Vines, um, do we have reason to believe that uh, his views are still those of the Trump administration when it comes to Africa? Oh, yes. I mean, th this is the strategy. Uh, it's underpinned also for the U.S.-Africa command that the primary U.S. Uh, objectives are, number one, is about minerals and natural resources and so a mercantile policy with Africa. Uh, and equally important is containment of China and what we're talking about, Russia. There has been a opinion editorial in the last couple of days published in the Washington Post by the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow and a former U.S. deputy assistant secretary of state for African affairs, arguing that while the Russians are prospering in Africa because the Americans, despite the Bolton strategy, the Trump administration's preoccupation, they're just providing lots of vacuum for the Russians and others to get involved. Natalia Bugiova, would you go along with that, that it's the Trump administration's lessening of interest uh, in Africa, arguably, that is allowing the Russians to, and indeed the Chinese, uh, to gain more of a foothold? I would agree with the fact that Western uh, pullback from Africa does indeed provide opportunities for Russia. But I think Russian strategy in Africa is driven not just by the opportunity, but also by necessity and larger strategic goals expanding the economic streams and not just for Russia itself but also for Putin's regime and his associates. The activities that we actually see and the companies that are operating in Africa, many of them are linked directly to the Kremlin and are within Putin's circle. Secondly, the goal is also potentially in the long term to create a platform through which um, to evade sanctions given the activity that Russia is engaged and lend themselves particularly well to money laundering and the industries such as uh, mineral resource extraction. And then finally, expanding the global military footprint, as well as access to the naval rounds, as well as uh, several maritime uh, choke points such as Suez Canal and Babel-Mannep Strait. Paul Simon Handy, has maybe Russia arrived at the party too late, given that uh, China has been there now for some time? To be completely honest, this typical great power competition. Yeah, Russia has been a bit um, late, has uh, let countries like China, even India, making quite some inroads into Africa. And Russia, when we look at numbers, uh, particularly trade numbers, 
uh, Russia's trade in Africa was um, uh, uh, particularly low, about $17 billion last year. Uh, compared to China's $200 billion. So it's, um, Russia has still uh, a lot uh, to catch up. Olga Kukova of the Africa Institute in <coughs> Moscow. Do you feel that you are having to catch up, that uh, China's influence in Africa is expanding and that uh, you've arrived, Russia, rather late on the scene? Uh, yes, Julian, I can uh, agree. And, you know, even Russian experts, they uh, say that our engagement in Africa is like hopping on the last wagon of the train. Many partners of Africa, they already have, for example, this established summits like China and India and the European Union, and Russia has it only now. But Russia should, should do what it can. And it never uh, it was said that we should compete with anybody, with any other actor on the African continent. And, you know, Natalia was mentioned our limited possibility to invest. Now, of course, it is limited in comparison with China, for example, but still the investment is growing, the trade is growing significantly, and it's not only arms. The prime arms exporter in the world is the United States, and they have uh, military bases uh, on African continent, which Russia Russia doesn't have. Russia also has many major initiatives, which I think they're beneficial also for African states. For example, Russian zone, industry zone with Egypt. It's a huge project and there are other positive initiatives which are not often talked much about in the West. That's it. Natalia Bogiova, should we necessarily assume uh, that Russia's uh, intentions in Africa are malign? No, as I've mentioned before, some of them are quite pragmatic and logical and a logical extension of uh, Russia's global campaign. However, we should also remember that this is part of the broader strategy that supports a lot of malign geopolitical goals, including legitimizing Russia's illegal activities around the world. Alex Vines? There are legitimate things the Russians are doing because, as we've heard, they are pragmatic. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is that the Russians have decided to really support the Afromexin Bank. So putting a lot more money in, it's a Cairo-based, uh, but it is a, a, a lending bank for across the African continent. And so that could potentially provide project finance in, in a structured way for infrastructures and other things. The way I see it, the Russians have niche areas that they can be involved in, and the Afromexin Bank is, is a more positive one. I do worry about things like the defense side of the Russian relationship, that they see the African continent as a major market for further growth. But as one of multiple players, or are they seeking to dominate that market? Well, they still dominate the market. So it's right that the U.S. is the largest defence provider in the world, but the U.S. take in Africa is small. Paul Simon Handy, uh, it appears once again Africans are the pawns in what is becoming an ever more complicated chess game on the continent of Africa. Yeah, we can also see that from the perspective of um, diversified partnerships for African countries. Africa is a continent that is in huge need of um, investment in infrastructure. But of course, all that can only last if um, strong institutions are in place. But uh, in many ways, I see Russia as uh, the big power it is, the permanent member of the Security Council, playing uh, big power politics. Sometimes again, sometimes in partnership with its uh, uh, competitors in Africa. Just explain to me, though, uh, Natalia Bogiova, how Russia can project more power globally with the help of Africa. 
which is um, something that you've mentioned in passing. Sure, I would point out two potential ways. One is uh, strategic basing. Um, Putin might succeed in his attempts to secure larger access to naval facilities and to anti-access area denial zones in Africa, though those efforts are going slowly. If he is able to, Russia could then contest the strategic maritime uh, choke points, such as Suez Canal. Um, I think secondly, it's uh, global legitimacy and ability to gain global acceptance of the Kremlin's actions and pull Africa into Russia's uh, global information space. Olga Kulkova, you've heard a lot in the course of the last hour that is uh, negative about uh, Russia's uh, involvement in Africa. At the very least, you must feel the need to engage in a public relations campaign to improve that image. Yes, I think uh, Russia should do more, probably not to improve the image, but to give more information to the African countries about what is uh, really uh, modern Russia, because everybody is talking about you know, Putin and you know geopolitical strategy, but um, many Africans probably they don't have the real knowledge about what Russian companies can offer, what Russian culture can offer, what are educational opportunities for African students in Russia. I, I will not deny that we have military technical cooperation with many African countries. And to some extent, Russia is proud of that because many African armies, they uh, bought Soviet weapons. And now it is the continuation of this uh, old cooperation. But Russia is not only about arms. It's also about culture. It's also about educational opportunities. It's also cooperation with uh, the young population of the African continent. It is important, I think, to convey this message that Russia has always been a friend for African countries. We supported the, this anti-colonial struggle uh, at the times when, you know, even Western countries, some of them, they were calling Mandela terrorists. You know, we were helping African partners. So this is important to remember. And there's a legacy of a positive history that Russia should not let people forget about that. Natalia Bogoyeva, Olga there, dipping into um, history for um, the record of Soviet involvement in Africa. But I was just wondering what you thought would be the most um, visible effect of Russian involvement in Africa in, say, a decade's time. A couple of things. One is expansion of Russia's informational presence in Africa. And that's the direction that um, Kremlin seems to be taking that, along with the effects of the soft power campaign and creation of a cadre of African leaders um, that are educated in Russia and are, if not Russia-friendly, then uh, at least Russia-neutral in their approaches. I think second point, which would be uh, visible if it succeeds, is additional um, strategic basing and expansion of the military footprint. And finally, uh, the potential for the uh, money laundering activities, uh, and um, as Russia is facing an increasing need to evade sanctions, potentially they would be able to f- uh, build out that infrastructure years down the road. Paul Simon Handy, 
I'm wondering if Russia is really interested in building uh, military bases. Uh, uh, the experience we see of Russia is that it's uh, far away from uh, Russia. It's expensive. I've been following that and wondering if that's really uh, a strategic objective, given the price that it costs. But I think uh, that Russia will invest a lot in symbolic gesture, like the next um, Russia-Africa summit is set to be not just a once-off, but actually something regular that will be held uh, in uh, every two years, I think. That will add to Russia's visibility in the continent. And uh, to me, that will put Russia on the map, particularly with um, its African partners. Alex Vines. Yes, I think there'll be more Russia-Africa summits or Africa-Russia summits. This is the first one. And uh, let's remember, the AU previously said, no more summits, we've got enough. After South Korea, they said that's the threshold. But of course, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council, is a big player. So there's clearly room for Russia. I think we'll see more business so in Africa by Russian companies and Russian companies partnering with uh, African businesses and others. Olga Kukova of the Africa Institute in Moscow. What do you see as being the most uh, visible effect of Russia's involvement in Africa in 10 years' time? I think the most visible effect that I expect and that Russian experts are expecting it is strengthening of our political cooperation with the African countries and strengthening of our trade and economic cooperation with them. And also I hope that Russia will promote more its soft power and its culture on the African continent and that more young Africans will learn about opportunities our country is offering. There will be more joint ventures between African businesses and Russian businesses. So uh, we hope that in 10 years' time, uh, more Russian businesses uh, will offer their services to the African population because we know that it is growing. And Russia is keen to, to contribute to the development of the human capital of Africa. I think that is what Africa needs you now to realize these goals and these dreams of the African nations. Okay, many thanks. Well, that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Olga Kulkova, Natalia Bogayova, Paul Simon Handy and Alex Vines. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Julian Marshall and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.